Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from first or this morning, excuse me, comes from first John chapter two. First John two and we'll read verses seven through twenty nine. First John 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So far, the word of God.
text to which we'll be giving special attention this morning is 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. It's quite a few verses, so we won't read it over again, but do keep it open as we'll be working our way uh, through these verses. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, As we prepare ourselves to come to the table of the Lord, we want to take the time to reflect here on the warning that John is giving us in our text. The context for that warning, for for the church at least to whom John was writing, was that apparently, apparently there were these former members of the church, you can see that in verse 19, he says they went out from us, who ended up teaching somewhere along the way that Jesus was not the Messiah after all, or the Christ. Uh, So you can see that in verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? These former members had begun to, to teach this. And ultimately, they either withdrew or were excommunicated from the church for that teaching. And apparently, as we find them here in this text... They were now busy trying to persuade the congregation that their views were correct. So you can see that in verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And we can assume from the fact that John is writing about these people that he was at least concerned for the church, uh, that there was at least some risk of the congregation being seduced by these teachings. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, have been writing about it. And, and so he writes about them, and what seems to be the concern, the primary concern for him, apart from the doctrine itself, is the claim that these people were making that you need us to teach you the truth. That's why he says, both in verse 20 and 27, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need anyone to teach you. That was apparently their means of seducing the congregation, telling them, you need us. To, to teach you some higher or deeper truth that you can't find yourself in God's word. Well, John's message to the congregation is one that uh, we can certainly learn from just as much as they needed to learn it then. If you want to sum it up, it's captured really well in short form right there in verse 24. This is uh, the summary of what he's exhorting them to do. He says, Let what you've heard from the beginning... It's the gospel message they they heard right when he first came to them. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You can take that word abide and and easily substitute remain. They they mean essentially the same thing. So if, if that helps to clarify the meaning, that's John's exhortation. Now John calls these former members of the church... Antichrists, simply because they are anti-Christ. In other words, they're opposing Christ. Uh, The Lord Jesus had warned that in the last day there would be uh, many people claiming to be Christ, uh, which, by the way, does not mean that they were claiming to be Jesus. That's how that, that verse is often misunderstood, that in the last days people will come claiming to be Jesus. Uh, that was not Jesus' point when he, when he uh, spoke that, those words. He said they will come claiming to be the Christ. In other words, making the argument that Jesus is not the Christ, and, and they are. Uh, So Jesus warned that these kind of people would be coming, and that's what 
these people in this church that John is writing to have in common with the people that Jesus himself warned about. They are denying that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in that respect, John calls these people antichrists. Even if they're not claiming to be Christ themselves, they are nonetheless denying that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, uh, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, as we, as we think about uh, those terms, also the, the use of the, the phrase, the last hour, that John uh, uses, it's important for us to keep in mind the, the context in which he was writing. Uh, the immediate events to which Jesus was referring in places like Matthew 24 and Mark 13, where he speaks about uh, the last days and, and the last hours and, and the, the man of lawlessness and these terms that we're familiar with hearing, uh, the immediate events to which Jesus was referring was the destruction of Jerusalem in, in the year 70 AD. Uh, Jesus specifically said, all these things will come upon this generation. Um, and so he made it very clear that, that it was something that was happening that soon, or at least would begin to happen uh, that soon. Now, we take that prophecy about Jerusalem and we recognize there are things there that still speak to the final day. Uh, the, the destruction and judgment of Jerusalem is like a picture of the judgment that's ultimately coming uh, to the world. But we want to still keep that context in mind. So when John says uh, we're in the last hours, he's thinking about that immediate context. Uh, there, there's debate about when exactly John was writing. Some people say the years 85 to 90. Others would say the years 65 to 68. And it actually makes a difference. I would take the earlier date uh, because then John is writing immediately about the events uh, concerning which Jesus himself spoke, uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. But even if he is writing uh, years later, that's still the context that, that he has in mind. John can say, brothers, we're in the last hours in a way that we today cannot necessarily uh, say. Uh, he was very conscious of the fact that he was living in exactly the times about which Jesus had spoken and concerning which Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. Well, John was an old man at that point, the very edge of that generation. That generation was passing away. And so John knew those events were happening in his time. Uh, we should be very careful not to extrapolate too quickly away from that and say, well, we also are living in the last times and, and the last hours. And we can look around the, the world and see uh, judgments or wars and earthquakes and maybe figures that we want to identify as, as the Antichrist. We want to be careful doing that. There's the immediate context to which Jesus was referring, and that is a picture of the final judgment but you, you have to be careful extrapolating from that to, to the present day or, or the future uh, judgment. Uh, the final day then will certainly come when the world will be judged, as the Lord Jesus also often taught. And we certainly do live in the, the last times, if you're talking about the, the last age, the age of the church. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're living in the last hours in the same way that John and his congregation were. Uh, of course, we need to live knowing that Jesus could 
come back at any time. You should live like it's the last hour because he may come at any moment. Uh, but we don't need to, to look around and, and identify the signs of the time, so to speak, as proving that we live in the last hours. Having said that, John calls these people antichrist because they're denying that Jesus is the Christ, and the church needed to know that that was going to happen in those days. And it did. It happened on a scale that it's never happened before in history, towards the end of uh, the, the, or towards the, the days of the judgment of Jerusalem, there were abundant uh, figures that called themselves the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, it certainly happened as the Lord Jesus spoke. He says, Matthew 24, uh, verse 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John is saying, brothers, this is what's happening in our days. And so John is warning the congregation about some people who had been members of that church whom he identifies as these antichrists. And it's a warning that he needed to give. The Lord Jesus didn't warn us about those things for nothing. Uh, he warned the church about them so that the church would be prepared. And now John is so- sounding out a wake up call that time has come, now be prepared. These, these antichrists, as I mentioned, were, were particularly compelling or persuasive or seductive because they seem to have claimed to have some sort of special knowledge or special access to, to revelation from God. Uh, you see figures like this also in the letters to the Corinthians, uh, people that Paul talks about as so-called super apostles who claim to have some deeper knowledge. And the claim that they were essentially making was, you need us in order to understand these heavenly secrets that you don't have access to yourselves. John warns the church very severely against such people, and his warning has truly a timeless relevance even for us as well. He reminds the congregation, verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. That, that Holy One is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Uh, he says again in verse 27, The anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and therefore you have no need for anyone to teach you. In other words, we as a church are never dependent on any human teacher in order to have access to the truth of Scripture. Nobody no matter what their academic degree, no matter what their position even in the church, or no matter what their apparent wisdom, no one can put us as a church under their control in that way, such that we we no longer have confidence that we can read Scripture and understand it for ourselves. Uh, that's the point that John is making. You have the Holy Spirit, uh, and, you, and therefore you don't need anyone to be your teacher, at least not in such a way that substitutes what the Holy Spirit is teaching you. So, so John starts with that reminder. You don't need these people. They claim that you need them. You don't. You have the Holy Spirit, and he's a better teacher than they will ever be. In other words, don't let them convince you that you depend on them in order to know the truth of the gospel. With that in mind, then, John urges them to simply go back 
to the truth that they heard right from the beginning, which is, of course, the gospel message uh, that they heard when they first uh, became Christians. He says in verse 21, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth. In other words, I'm not claiming to be some special teacher either. I know that you already know the truth. He says, but because you already do know the truth, and therefore the implication is you yourselves can recognize that what they're teaching is not the truth. That's the point he's making. You know the truth, and no lie is, is of the truth. Uh, you know the truth because you've heard it right from the beginning, and because the Holy Spirit has since confirmed it within you. And, and that's then the, the, the foundation for the commandment that he gives in verse 24 that we want to take to heart. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide or remain within you. Because if what you've heard from the beginning remains within you, then you will remain within, uh, Christ, within the Son and within the Father. The exhortation that John is giving there to, to his church is very simple, and it's as relevant for us as it ever was uh, for them. It's a simple exhortation. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the word that you've already heard, that you already know, and that you don't need anyone to, to teach you about some other deeper truth that would substitute that gospel. Remember, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, so don't let anyone shake your confidence in the word that you've heard. It's really an exhortation that's that simple. Don't let anyone dare tell you that you are not able to know what God's word teaches and that you need them in order to know it because you have the word yourselves, and you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the best teacher that anyone could ever hope for. You can imagine, uh, as Reformed Christians, what a treasure this text was during the time of the Reformation, because that was the very claim that the Roman Catholic uh, made in that day and continues to make to this day, is you can't read Scripture for yourselves, or you can read it, but you can't trust your own understanding of Scripture. You can't know for yourselves what Scripture teaches. You need us in order to tell you what it means. Uh, the Roman Catholic to this day still makes uh, that claim, that apart from their special insight, no one can understand the word. And they use that claim to hold people in absolute captivity to them, to themselves. It's why they, they so vigorously oppose the translation of the Bible during the time of the Reformation. Preaching, of course, was done in Latin. The scriptures uh, were still in Latin. And, and they, they vigorously opposed the translation of the Bible because it would send the message to the people that you can read this for yourself and it, you can understand it for yourself. And, and that's the truth that the Reformers rediscovered, uh, that believers, every one of them, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and perfectly capable of reading the Word of God for themselves. It's a doctrine that they called the, the perspicuity of Scripture. In other words, the, the clarity of Scripture. It speaks for itself. Now, you can use an academic degree and grow deeper and have a, a broader knowledge but any believer indwelt with the Spirit can read the Word of God and know the Gospel from it. And that's what gave the Reformers such confidence. It's why they, they labored so 
earnestly on the translation of Scripture because they realized if we translate the Word of God and bring it to the people, nothing will ever be able to stop it. It has power in itself. Uh, well, that, that should... That truth that the believers are indwelt with the Spirit and capable of reading the Word should give us today that same confidence that it gave the Reformers in that day. Uh, There there are plenty of theologians today, too, in high academia who would uh, seek to persuade us that the Bible doesn't really say what it says. And if you read it for what it says at face value, you can't trust that. You need us and our academic degrees to tell you what Scripture really means. And uh, you can't understand the Bible without our special expertise. In other words, my academic degree trumps the plain reading of Scripture. And therefore, you're not capable of reading the Bible for yourselves. We certainly hear that message uh, very often in our own day. Now, we can certainly benefit from an academic study of Scripture. That's why we use commentaries. Probably all of us uh, do that. That's why we have a a seminary that's that's very rigorous in the academics. Uh, So you kids, you can't go to school tomorrow and say, hey, look, the Bible says we don't need any teachers. Uh, That's certainly not the point. He's talking here about teachers that contradict and contravene the word and undermine your confidence in the word that tell you you can't understand it for yourself. Uh, John says, no, you have the Holy Spirit. He's the best teacher anyone could hope for, and you can certainly read God's word yourself. In fact, a good Bible teacher at school ought to show you that you can read the word for yourself and equip you to be able to do that. Also, this, John's warning is not to say that uh, we should each of us just grab our Bibles and read them by ourselves and not share our insights or, or learn from one another. That, that would be a wrong takeaway. Individually, of course, we can all, all of us are human. We can all come to wrong uh, conclusions. That's why we read Scripture together, and, and that's why we share our insights within the communion of the saints, also through history. That's why we uh, listen to what the, the fathers that have come before us have, have said and, and done with Scripture. But even still, we never elevate anyone, even the Reformers, to a position where we say their opinion is the final answer, and I can't trust the Bible for myself. I need them to tell me what it says. As soon as we give up that ground, we become captives, and it's a very, very dangerous place to be. So that's the message that John is giving to the church of his day. Go back to the word you've heard from the beginning, the gospel that you already know, and remember, you're anointed with the Holy Spirit. So don't let anyone shake your confidence in that gospel. On the flip side to that, there, there is certainly an important warning that this leaves for us, and that's this. When people are deceived, as of course they often are, it's always due to a lack of grounding in God's word, a lack of abiding in the message they heard from the beginning, and an absence of participation in life, in, in the life of the Spirit. 
Those are the two things that John urges them to go back to. The word you've heard from the beginning and the spirit who teaches you. Hold on to those and you won't go astray. If you go astray, it's because you're not holding on to those. And ultimately, John reminds us, this, this matters. It has eternal consequences. If you look at verse uh, 23, uh, no one who denies the Son, as these people did, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So when these, these former members of that congregation ultimately walked away from, from Christ and they, they ultimately denied Christ as, or Jesus as, as the Christ, what John is saying is they lost the Father with him. If you give up Christ, you're giving up the Father as well. And that meant that they also lost their eternal inheritance. If you look at verse 24, he says, If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. And verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That's what's at stake in holding on to the gospel that you already know, you've already heard, and holding on to the Spirit who teaches you. Eternal life is ultimately at stake. You can't have eternal life without the Father And you can't have the Father without the Son. And so therefore, don't let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son. This is an important exhortation and warning for us as we prepare ourselves to go to the Lord's table. The ultimate goal of this warning is that we would not be led astray ourselves and ultimately finding ourselves denying Christ, either by our doctrine or by our life. Uh, the goal and the, the ultimate exhortation, the last, the very last exhortation that he gives in our text is right at the end of verse 27. Here's where he sums it up. He says, look, this is ultimately what I'm saying. Abide in him. Right there at the end of verse 27. So to paraphrase that verse, John says, since the Holy Spirit is your teacher... And since the gospel you've already heard, you know to be true, and it's not a lie, stay true to that message and thereby remain in Christ. Through Christ, then, you'll have the Father. Through the Father, you'll have eternal life. Well, we come to the supper to do exactly this, to remember and to celebrate that we abide in Christ, that we belong to him and remain in him. We come to confess that he is indeed the Christ. He is the one whom the Father said is coming. And he is the Son of God and our Savior and the Lord of our lives. All of those things we confess when we come to the table. So we come to this table because of the gospel that we heard right from the beginning, because we know that gospel to be true, and because the Holy Spirit has sealed that gospel uh, within our hearts. And so as we come then to this table, let's come remembering that old gospel that we've heard right from the beginning, that we've believed throughout our lives, and that the Holy Spirit has sealed within our hearts, that God sent his Son into the world to pay for our sins, to suffer and die, so that we could have forgiveness and be brought into fellowship with the Father. That gospel should never get old to us. And that's what we come to the table to celebrate. And as we come to the supper then, we come not only to remember that gospel, 
but also to renew our commitment to living that gospel out in our lives, to living as a people who confess the name of Christ. The Christian life is always a paradox between the, the already and the not yet. And the Lord's Supper, probably more than anything, puts that paradox on display. We come to remember what is not yet, the inheritance that's still to come, as verse 25 says, the promise of eternal life. But we also come to live out what is already true, that we belong to Christ, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in that way, the, the Lord's Supper is our foretaste of eternity. That's why it's so important that we hold on to the gospel and through the gospel hold on to Christ. Because we abide with Christ here on earth, we're going to abide with him for eternity. And so we must remain with him and in him right here and now. The supper is Christ's way of promising us that he does indeed belong to us. And it's our declaration of faith that we too belong to him. And so it is indeed a foretaste of eternal life. So come, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the table of Jesus Christ which we will have now and celebrate for the rest of eternity. Amen.